1: This is only. You are listening to Expert Opinion. In this format, we are asking just one question from many experts and compiling the answers together. Questions we have in this format are mainly about the current trends, future perspectives, and what these experts find most interesting and exciting in a specific subject matter. We would love to hear your feedback and suggestions, so please feel free to suggest questions and also experts you would like to hear in this podcast series. We welcome any researcher to provide their opinion, non-dependent of academic title, age, gender, ethnicity, geographical location, or anything like that. You can either record your opinion on an existing theme or suggest a new theme to be included in the expert opinion series. So if you are interested please message us and we will provide you guidelines how you can record your answer. It's simple and can be done whenever you happen to have time. Also I wanted to mention here that Physical Activity Researcher podcast is now available also on YouTube and Facebook. We are publishing episodes for Preview before they are published elsewhere, so be sure to subscribe and follow this podcast also on YouTube and Facebook. YouTube also provides automatic subtitles on every language providing possibility for more people to learn from great experts of this podcast. So, if you know any people who might find this feature useful, we would appreciate you sharing this information with them. Question of this expert opinion episode is, what are the most interesting advances in qualitative research in sport and physical activity science? And let's hear now what experts have to say.
2: Hi, my name is uh, Sine Hojbjer Larsen and I'm associate professor. I'm researching lifestyle sports at the Department of Sports Sciences and Clinical Biomechanics at the University of Southern Denmark. And first I want to thank the podcast for letting me share my experience with visual ethnography in researching lifestyle sports. Today, I'll tell you a little bit about the advantages of using an action camera as a third eye for generating empirical data. And I also try to talk a little bit about the methodological reflection related to my work and some of the lessons that I learned using this uh, method. In my PhD, I used uh, this action camera called GoPro to uh, generate my empirical data. And my PhD project um, was about the institutionalization of parkour in Denmark. And one of the research aims was to describe and understand the self-organized practice of parkour. I wanted to grasp it and, uh, and to explore the embodied experiences of, uh, of the ex- uh, practitioners. So what do they actually do when they practice parkour? And how does it feel and, uh, and make meaning to them? Most of you have uh, probably seen parkour in in social media but there is quite a difference between how parkour is represented in popular culture and the daily practice on the street. I wanted to grasp the daily practice uh, so I did ethnographic fieldwork among 15 Danish practitioners and I was inspired by multi-sided fieldwork and sensory ethnography. And I follow these practitioners very, very closely in the the daily training. In the fieldwork, I took on a role as observer, as participant. And I had the opportunity to do that because I had been practicing parkour myself for several years. So it was actually physically possible for me to to follow them over rails and walls and, and even in the heights. And uh, having these physical abilities, it gave me an advantage in exploring the lived and embodied aspect of the practice, and it uh, furthermore made me, made me a more legitimate cultural insider uh, in the training groups. But as this moving insider, I also met some methodological challenges. The first challenge was that uh, I couldn't participate and take notes at the same time. So you can't do pāku with a notebook uh, and a pen in your hand. The notebook also disturbed the pra- practice because it was a a object uh, in the street. It, it constantly attracted the petitioner's attention. I also tried for some time to use my, my fieldwork for noting down my field notes. But it, it made me look distracted and uninterested in the practice. When practicing pakua, the petitioners, they normally kept their phones in the bottom of the backpacks, so using my phone seemed uh, as an appropriate thing to do. I also experienced uh, the drawback of being an insider. My familiarity with the practice made it very difficult for me to ask the critical uh, questions that I needed to ask uh, to the bodily practice. To meet those challenges, I therefore chose to uh, experiment with the with using the GoPro camera. And this idea came about because uh, the GoPro camera was uh, a familiar object to the petitioners. They were used to that, the, that object. There were always one or two petitioners carrying or using a GoPro, uh, GoPro camera when they trained. So it actually made no difference if I added a camera more. I also read an article by Clifton Evers, who was using GoPro to, uh, to explore surfing culture in Australia. So I chose to to try to do that as well. The GoPro camera is a it's a wearable digital video camera. It can be attached to your head, to your chest, or to other body part uh, parts, as well as uh, to your sporting equipment if you go surfing or you go skiing. It enables uh, a point of view vision, but you can always just uh, use it for selfies as well as you can use it as an ordinary camera. It films in the high definition footage and it has a fish eye lens, so it captures a very wide panoramic image. So I start using this GoPro camera in my fieldwork. When practicing parkour, the petitioners they move around in the city all the time. They find a good spot, they train there for some time, before they move on to a new spot. And uh, the spots most often consist of just a couple of walls or a couple of rails. And therefore, most of the time, this fish island was actually able to capture the whole spot and the whole practice. So I put it on the top of a wall or something else, and it captured everything that was said and done uh, in the practice. And after each training session, I started by writing my field notes down from memory. And after that, I saw the footage, transcripting significant situations and talks, and I noted down questions for further exploration in, in my field work. So the videos enabled me to zoom in and out of my observation. Watching the videos made me ask new questions to the situation that I'd experienced, uh, and after that i was able to follow up on that in my fieldwork or in the in my follow up interviews uh, with the participant besides uh, this advantages of letting me zoom in and out in my observation i also experienced uh, some other methodological strengths it did make my presence as a researcher uh, less disturbing as i intended um, and it also enabled me to actually absorb deeper into the practice and research because I shouldn't worry about uh, getting field notes written down or, or remembering things um, so I could uh, uh, note them down afterwards. I didn't have to stress about this, uh, but instead I could focus on the non-visible and the more bodily aspects of the practice. And um, if I had some important thoughts or experience, I just went to the camera, very close to it, and then I whispered my thoughts to the microphone. And in that way, they were also saved. Um, The use of the camera um, also made it possible to supplement my analysis with screenshots from the fieldwork. And it made it easier for me to give the reader of the PhD and the text and the articles an idea of the physical setting and situation that I described and analyzed. Finally, the use of the GoPro camera also made me reflect on my presence and my interaction with the petitioners. It enabled uh, it me to look at myself as a researcher in the field and ask critical uh, questions to my, to my presence. I actually spotted the situation where I was supposed to ask more critical questions, uh, but I didn't. So you can say that the, f- the footage triggered reflection about my role and my intuitive action and thereby it, uh, it helped me develop as a researcher. Of course, I, I also learned some uh, good lessons using this GoPro for generating empirical data. Firstly, uh, even though the fisheye lens captures this white panoramic image, It is quite important to have continuing attention to where you put the camera. At one point I accidentally put myself in front of the lens while I was talking to to two petitioners about a move that another petitioner wanted to do and we were standing and looking at that. But I'm in the way of the lens uh, so it's not possible to see anything uh, except my butt in the picture. Secondly, I also experienced that it is important to be aware of weather condition. You have to keep uh, continuing attention to noise from wind, for example. The camera has a quite good microphone and it was actually quite easy to hear the speak uh, on the footage. But it was very sensitive to wind, uh, this microphone. Um, I also experienced that cold uh, actually drained the battery. So to solve that problem, I tried to attach the camera to a small thermos with hot cocoa in in cold weather uh, and it actually worked in that way. I I was able to keep a full battery during my field work, and uh, the good thing was I also had a hot cocoa for my trip home. So I can recommend that trick. So the relevant ending question is now uh, if this is a good method for generating empirical data in, in sports research. And I believe it is, but uh, I also believe that the use of the GoPro camera has uh, the biggest potential in lifestyle and action sport because uh, they are familiar objects. In other fields, they might disturb as much as I experienced that the notebook did uh, in my case. It's also important to note that uh, I was using the GoPro camera as a supplementary method it helped me remember the practice it enabled different observation of the practice and it helped me to become more reflective about my role as a researcher and to develop a more critical distance as uh, an enculturated participant in the field but uh, if i had used the footage as my only method or if i had used the petitioner's footage uh, a lot of other important methodological consideration would have been necessary So, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, Please feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions, any comments or ideas for collaboration. I'll be happy to hear from you. And thanks again to the podcast for giving me this opportunity to share my work. And uh, finally, thanks for the excellent work with this uh, podcast.
3: Hello, I'm Dr. Michael McDougall. I'm an assistant professor of psychology at Keystone College, a small liberal arts college in northeast Pennsylvania in the USA. I obtained my master's degree and PhD in sports psychology from Liverpool John Moores University. I mainly research culture and cultures in sport and organizational contexts. I accent heavily from anthropology, sociology, cultural studies, organizational management studies, and critical scholarship in the social sciences and management to ground and develop my ideas, analyses and applied practices. Um, The value of qualitative research in the spaces that I research and work in is that qualitative research helps me to stay quite close to the ground, which is, is pretty vital in the area of culture since culture is a concept uniquely concerned with people, how they live, And refers to the way people make sense of and construct meanings, and therefore their worlds. Um, I'm delighted to be invited onto the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast to answer the very intriguing question of what is the most interesting advances in qualitative research in sport and physical activity. Um, In truth, I've found this surprisingly difficult question to answer, which is perhaps an indication there are. There are actually uh, lots of possible answers, such as the very good responses from previous guests, uh, Drs. Francesca Champ, Gareth Wiltshire and Javier Montefort. Um, I will now sort of shamelessly borrow from them in my own response to the question. Um, so a common thread I heard across each of their contributions was that qualitative research in all of its forms has to be made to do stuff. And by stuff, I mean practice, applied work, um, social transformation. So call it what you want, but qualitative research should ideally uh, affect and indeed positively affect uh, the world that we live in. I think it was really telling that each of the guests in their own way identified this characteristic of qualitative research as something that has been a significant advancement to our field Uh, and it is increasingly showcased in qualitative work because I think, and I'm probably speaking extensively from my own personal experience here, that sometimes it's very easy as a qualitative researcher to get caught up in the analysis and the process of qualitative research and the careful uh, description of people's lived experiences without perhaps paying as much attention as we could to the possibility for explanation or of doing something uh, beyond the research that contributes to uh, the world beyond the research process. And I think that's a trap that is particularly easy to fall into um, in what is comparatively a fairly small and tight-knit community of sport qualitative researchers. I think it's very easy to fool ourselves into believing that our research has impact when sometimes in reality it might not really transcend uh, to any great extent beyond our immediate network and circle of qualitative sport researchers. So another way of saying this is that I think it's very important to intentionally and purposefully grow and extend uh, the reach and influence of our research endeavours. So I suppose in a roundabout way, that's the first part of my answer. Qualitative research is, I think, with effort and some intentional application of her craft, uh, increasingly able to bridge the, the notorious gap that exists between research and practice. So in regard to this point, what I actually find uh, really innovative just now is not just the increased variety of topics that we cover as qualitative researchers, it's not just the um, diversity of ontological and epistemological positions or the methods that we align those to, uh, to examine some really exciting topics. But it actually what I think is quite innovative is the way in which many sport qualitative researchers are presently striving to communicate their ideas beyond traditional boundaries off and uh, within academia. Uh, in an effort to translate their research and ideas for new and different audiences. Uh, I actually think that's very important because it creates a distinct possibility of boundary crossing, uh, which I always think tends to lead to innovation. Because when you put people with varied interests and different backgrounds together and connect socially and intellectually, and they start to bat around concept problems and solutions, I think that's when innovation really starts to emerge. One way that I think we are doing this well as a community just now is in increased attempts at interdisciplinary scholarship and collaborations. So for me, interdisciplinary research cultivates innovation because it brings new ideas, theories uh, into a sphere, and demands that they are given the close attention that they have been given in other disciplines that are sometimes more familiar with those concepts and ideas. So I'm a big believer that careful scholarship and attention to the origins of concepts and how they were borrowed and transformed in the borrowing can yield a lot of gains when it comes to innovating our research. So as one example, in... Performance sports psychology, the concept of culture has been used predominantly in a performative way. So as a tool to engineer and spread consensus values in order to achieve athletic success. Now, that's great. Uh, I enjoy that research, but closer attention to the concept, its origins, its history, how it has been studied, in various disciplines such as anthropology and sociology would actually reveal that there are many different traditions of culture study and indeed many different uh, concepts of culture that inhabits those disciplines. And if we paid close attention to that, I think it means we could use culture in many, many ways beyond purely the performative. So I suppose on to the second part of my answer. Uh, More broadly, it seems to me that some of these efforts to cross boundaries and communicate with different audiences speaks to the, I I guess, a commitment to the personal and professional development of researchers themselves. I think we're becoming far better at producing outputs beyond... um, the generic, often jargonistic, esoteric peer review academic paper. There are more and better quality blogs. People are producing high quality webinars and podcasts. I think people are learning to more skillfully, effectively and strategically use social media platforms such as Twitter and LinkedIn to grow their network and expand the reach of their ideas. Uh, we ought to keep thinking of new ways to make a research accessible and open for people who work in applied domains and for the general public. Uh, I think there's a number of ways we can do that, such as writing shorter synopses of our articles and research findings uh, for applied people with less time on their hands, but who could really stand to benefit from some of the essence of our ideas uh, without some of the same rigmarole attached. So these kind of efforts make us as a community a little bit less insular, a little bit less self-contained, and I think, therefore, of more value. I believe that some of these observations speak to an exciting trend in qualitative research circles, whereby early career researchers are perhaps beginning to de-identify with the notion that they are only researchers or academics. I know I've got many close colleagues and friends who are concerned by the demands of working within university institutions and by the conditions and broader systems of academia more generally. So it's, it's kind of strange right that having spent so much time to go through a process and come in such time and effort to try and break into these somewhat closed environments, many people I think are now trying to get out uh, in various ways and that means realizing and actualizing the value of their ideas and their applicability of the the qualitative skill set that they hold beyond the traditional tasks and roles of the academic. Uh, So part of this is being able to translate research insights into new and wider applied audiences. So to continue boundary-crossing exercises and to develop an identity beyond academia, and sometimes it seems are quite narrow areas of interest, I would very much encourage all early career researchers to start networking early and widely, and particularly beyond the confines of their discipline, interests and specialisms. So over a number of years, I've developed a large and very applied network beyond sport, and it always creates new opportunities. Uh, The two-way flow of ideas that occur with people who have nothing to do with sport uh checking and challenging your thinking has absolutely informed my scholarship it forces you to think more carefully about what you research how it might be useful or even not useful as the, the case may be across a variety of domains it forces you to try and make the esoteric practical which can be challenging when you want to do useful work but also protect the credibility and rigor of your theories and analyses uh, it's also a process that it really allows people with different backgrounds to make sense of and critique your assumptions from you know, a range of different angles. Uh, many people who work in applied domains, they operate at the coalface in highly pragmatic worlds. and Certainly for me, that has given me a lot of food for thought and it has opened my eyes to new lines of inquiry as well as some new applications of my ideas that I might not have thought of otherwise. So in this sense, I think untethering ourselves, even just a little bit from our academic identities and worldviews can be a disruptive endeavour that can help innovation. And I use the term disruptive in the sense that I think we need to be able to disrupt in order to create and to ensure that our qualitative research remains in the innovative and also practically useful. So perhaps one, one idea just as a start to round up now around the idea of innovation itself. Uh, with the best will in the world, I think any discipline or academic community of researchers can become a little bit homogenous and a little bit static, a little bit stale. Now that would be unfortunate for qualitative researchers, who I think have always tried to challenge the status quo. But it's it's something that that can I think can really happen uh, in in any sort of circle, really. Uh, for for one thing, we tend to read the same papers, and because we're still a, a smallish community, small enough, that means we're exposed to the same ideas. So. You know, good papers by influential figures can become dominant. It's not really the fault of the influential figures. They've, they've done excellent work over a, a career and are successful precisely because they are good at what they do and they write really great papers. But because of some of the success and um, because they are known, they get more citations and... Uh, Sometimes even to get your own work published, you have to cite them in order to get published. But if we all start reading the same things, we start to perpetuate the same ideas. And that's when I think creativity can become a little bit stifled. So to really innovate, I I think we need a little bit of discontent uh, and perhaps a little bit more of a critical edge and a willingness to challenge what can become the status quo? So, you know, I think Henry Ford had, had some sort of quote that he said something along the lines of, um, if I had given the people what they wanted or what they expected, I'd have built them a faster horse. Now, obviously, that's uh, quite an exceptional disruption, and not all disruption has to be uh, radical or absolutely game-changing. It can be a little bit more incremental. It can come in the form of small tensions and fissures uh, within our fields of study, within our disciplines. It can emerge from ripples of discontent, uh, and I think we need those in order to not go stale, um, so that we can have better conversations and different intellectual starting points for our conversations and our qualitative projects. So... Just quickly, as some recent examples um, that I can point to that maybe illuminates that point a little bit, um, I, I guess one that comes to mind is a recent and very valuable addition to support qualitative research by Gareth Wiltshire and Nora uh, Ronkainen, who recently problematized some widely accepted ideas about relativism and offered a uh, a realist alternatives that allowed for the possibility of uh, both ontological realism and epistemological constructionism as compatible so their challenge to this you know widely accepted dualism uh, i think is going to be very important to research in our field but to me personally it gave me the means to think about interpretivist approaches to culture as not necessarily attached or beholden to a relativist ontology, which to a very large degree sort of validated my reading of the works of many anthropologists uh, who I admired. Uh, another example, uh, I read a recent article, Historicizing Cultural Sports Psychology: Dare We decenter Methodological Eurocentrism. And that is Again, there are Ron Kainan, and Sammy Lee. And in Sammy Lee's section, she wrote, I thought, really eloquently about cultural sports psychology and a radical revision of uh, the academic as an activist who is both critically and publicly engaged. But while also arguing that that can't really occur without also revisioning, what it means to conduct uh, research or or ethical research with decolonized methodologies and practices. And I thought that was a really powerful call to action and a challenge for us all to think a little differently about what we do and how we do it. So those are just two examples, uh, but I'm seeing lots of those little ripples, little ruptures of understanding and meaning, which I think are quite exciting. So just two small examples, but things that I think can really help to innovate our field. So that is it, and thank you for listening.
0: Hello, my name is Tony Williams, and I'm a senior lecturer in sport and exercise psychology at Leeds Beckett University. In my opinion, one of the most interesting and exciting advances in qualitative research in sport and physical activity science. Is the introduction of the new International Society of Qualitative Research in Sport and Exercise, QRSE. The QRSE Society was launched at the end of 2019 and was established to provide an international home solely dedicated to qualitative research and a forum that is devoted to promoting, advancing, and connecting qualitative researchers in sport and exercise sciences. It is open to all methods, methodologies, traditions, epistemologies, ontologies and empirical work that fall under the umbrella of qualitative research. The QRISE Society is also multidisciplinary by bringing together researchers interested in qualitative research from the disciplines of sport and exercise psychology, sociology of sport, sport coaching, sport pedagogy, leisure studies, sport management sport policy, sport exercise medicine and others. We have three main aims and these are to promote qualitative research in sport and exercise science, to advance excellence in qualitative research and teaching and to provide a forum for networking, knowledge sharing, collaboration, lobbying and fostering supportive relationships and communities. So who are we as a society? The Society builds upon the growing interest in qualitative research among sport and exercise scholars. In 2009, the Qualitative Research in Sport and Exercise and Health Journal was established, and soon after, the International Conference on Qualitative Research in Sport and Exercise became a biennial event. More recently, the Routledge book series Qualitative Research in Sport and Physical Activity was also established. So, since establishing the journal, conference, and the book series, numerous scholars across the world were asking if a society dedicated to qualitative research in sport and exercise was going to be started. For a long time, the answer was no, because we already have many societies in sport and exercise domains. However, as time progressed and dialogues unfolded with hundreds of sport and exercise scholars at conferences, meetings, and over social media, it became clear there was a real need for a new society that complements those others, but which is distinctly qualitative and connects researchers from different disciplines. So I'm a founding member of the society alongside Professor Brett Smith from Durham University, and we are led by an executive board of international scholars in qualitative research, of which we are proud that 70% of are women We also have a number of members at large, early career researchers, and ex officio members who feed into the aims and the activities of the Society. So, what do we do? The Society provides education and training through a biannual conference, workshops, webinars, and podcasts. Members of the QRSE Society have access to additional benefits, including educational resources, PhD theses and an expert directory to facilitate collaboration and sharing of knowledge through our website. They also have access to book chapters written by members and virtual topic-focused meetings. Members are also working to produce expert position statements that will support best practice and provide expert advice to the individual public, organisations and charities. So what have we achieved in this first year? Well, we're thrilled that in our first year, we currently have 145 members from 18 countries. The flagship event of the QRSE Society is the international conference that was due to be held at Durham University this year. We received over 200 abstracts to prevent at the conference and had attracted delegates worldwide. Unfortunately, due to coronavirus, we sadly had to postpone this event. But the pandemic did not stop our other activities. We have started a series of bi-monthly journal clubs run by our early career research team. The first was on guiding qualitative social scientific research in sport and exercise with Dr Nick Caddick. And the second was focused on phenomenology with special guest Professor Susan Rung. Both journal clubs were a huge success with members logging in from around the world to engage in critical discussion with these experts. We have also released a chapter every two months from QRSE Society member Dr Javier Montford and his book, Becoming a Qualitative Researcher. In these chapters, Javier considers important questions such as what makes someone a qualitative researcher and how qualitative researchers do their job, followed by discussions regarding the academic and political context qualitative researchers live and move through. This book is aimed at PhD candidates and early career researchers as Javier invites you to enjoy, reflect on and engage in critical dialogue on the qualitative research journey. A new initiative to support members during the pandemic was an educational resource section added to our website qrsesoc.com. Here we added resources for teaching and research in multiple topics including qualitative metasynthesis, story completion, Ethics, data saturation, narrative analysis, new materialism, photo elicitation, autoethnography, analysing exceptions, role of theory, open data, and on collecting data online through internet ethnography, Twitter, Skype, and Zoom. As you can imagine, these resources were hugely helpful for members and we will continue to update this library throughout the 2020-21 academic year. Also, Currently in Progress is a podcast series dedicated to qualitative research. The audience we are aiming for is undergraduate and postgraduate students. What we hope to do is offer members who teach qualitative research a set of resources to help with their teaching. We think that might be particularly useful, giving the move for many to a blended learning approach this year. Another exciting initiative comes in the form of what might loosely be termed a collaborative approach to societies. In April, we approached many sport and exercise societies from around the world. This included sports sociology societies, like the North American Sociology of Sport Society, Sport and exercise psychology societies like FEPSAC and the International Society of Sport Psychology, more general societies like the European College of Sports Sciences, and national organisations like BASEs and SCAPS. We have met now on several occasions and enjoyed some useful conversations, and we are looking to embark on some exciting ventures together. One of which is centred, we hope, around social justice and a collective statement for action about equality, diversity and inclusion in sport and physical activity. Such a collective approach, a move to bring many different sport and exercise societies together to share learning and work together when appropriate, has never been done before. It's a first. And we are proud to say that the QRSE Society initiated leads and chairs this work in line with our aim to foster supportive relationships and communities. So what else is happening next academic year? Well the 2020-2021 academic year will see many of us continuing to work from home with our teaching and research activities happening virtually. As such we will continue to deliver our education and training online during this year and we are exploring virtual conference options. Other events, like journal clubs, will continue. The book being written by Javier will move forward and we will listen to our members as to what new activities they would like. We will, we hope, also develop activities more collectively with other societies, as mentioned, to benefit the sport and exercise community and our members at large. If you would like to find out more about the QRSE Society and join our community, please visit our website, www.qrsesoc, which is soc.com, or follow us on Twitter at QRSEsoc. So thank you very much for listening. Take care.
1: Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Research through podcasts.